Hey everybody, welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so this week on the show, I am joined once again by our very own Dylan Wood to give you some updates and chat about a bunch of the stuff we've been testing of late, including a few different bikes from Intense, Revel, and Santa Cruz, and we also chat a whole bunch about mullet wheels, crank length, and a bunch of updates on our big upcoming brake shootout that we're working on, and a whole lot more stuff. And so... This is a good one. We cover a lot of ground and chat a lot about all the various testing that we're up to these days. So if you're enjoying these, I would, as always, encourage you to check out our Blister membership. And if you like listening to us talk about bikes, drop an email to me through the form in the member clubhouse and chat about what you are planning on buying for your next upgrade, your next bike, work on your own bike setup, or whatever it is that you need to do to get your bike more dialed and have a better time out on the trails. We've also got a bunch of really good discounts from a bunch of brands, including Wheels from We Are One, and a bunch of really excellent extra content that you get, including our deep dives and flash reviews, and all of that good stuff. And we'll be rolling out a lot more member content to come soon as well. So check out the Blister membership. And with that, let's get right to my chat with Dylan. Well, Dylan, great to sit down and chat about bikes as always. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Yeah, it's full on fall time here in Gunnison Crested Butte. Super yellow trees everywhere. We actually just got what I would consider our first like legitimate snowfall. Basically everything above tree line was white um on Friday and Saturday morning. Um so yeah, it's feeling definitely not like summer at all here anymore and creeping up on winter um but still lots of bike riding to be had and yeah i really love this time of year how are you doing doing pretty well it's still 80 and smoky here so feels much more summery than where you're at but uh yeah things are good so just to kick it off i guess you've been kind of wrapping up testing on a couple of bikes that we've touched on at least a little bit on here before but kind of wanted to start off by having you just give some updates and sort of see what's new and going on with what you've been testing of late. Yeah, not a ton new, but like you said, wrapping up times on, on bikes that we've uh, had for a little bit of time here over the summer. Um, and one of those is the intense tracer two seven nine. So I think the story with this bike is yeah, it's a mullet bike, but I think like we've touched on before, mullet bikes are just bikes first and foremost, and they feel mostly normal um, with, a, with a few bit of performance characteristics that set them apart for sure. Um, so yeah, not a super foreign ride at all, comparing it to like the Santa Cruz Mega Tower I spent a lot of time on this summer, as well as the Revel Rail 2.9 that we'll get on a little bit later or that I'll touch on a little bit later, been spending time on that. Um, it has a pretty noticeable rearward weight bias. Um, where that's most apparent to me is when riding pretty steep terrain, it feels like it allows you to assume what feels like a bit more of a casual riding stance. Um, I think I've felt it, it feels more comfortable in, in steep terrain than a lot of the enduro bikes I've been on. and. I kind of feel like that is where it feels most at home is, is going through steep terrain. Um, in, in flatter terrain that kind of translates to needing a bit more of an aggressive riding stance, a bit more weight on that front tire to keep better traction in corners and whatnot. Um, and speaking of which it's one of the best cornering enduro bikes I've been on. Um, and I think I would attribute that to, the rearward weight bias and mullet wheel setup, which is kind of the same thing. Um, I still haven't found a really good way to like formulate my thoughts on why I feel like mullet bikes are better at cornering and I'm working on it, but it just feels like easier to tip into corners when you're kind of steering from your hips and your feet, like at higher speeds, instead of, you know, using your bars to sort of do most of the steering at slower speeds. It's, 
really intuitive when you're entering a corner and exiting versus I feel like full 29ers can be a little bit vaguer in terms of when they want to be cornering and when they don't want to be. And obviously I'm saying that as a blanket statement for 29ers, but geometry and uh, there's a lot of variables here, but that's just a generalization. Okay. So that's, that's interesting because I've spent, I haven't ridden the tracer specifically, but having ridden quite a few different mullet bikes, everything that you're saying kind of checks out and isn't like the specifics of what you're talking about aren't really different from my experiences, but I actually tend to get along a little bit less well with the cornering behavior of mullets. And the thing for me personally, I think this is just sort of indicative of different preferences and different riding styles than us Mm -hmm. noticing different things necessarily, but is that mullet setups just make the rear wheel feel like it wants to cut in a little bit quicker as you start to lean the bike over than what the, where the front wheel is tracking. And so I can totally understand how for some people, like it sounds like you included that tends to feel just quicker and easier to muscle the bike around and those kind of things, which makes sense. And I think that's all true. The flip side of it is that for me, it often feels a little bit less intuitive than a bike with matched wheel sizes, be it 27.5 or 29, in that the, because as you start to lean in, the rear wheel wants to tuck in quicker, you then have to do just a little bit of more coordinated, slight bits of steering input through the bars too, to kind of cut tuck the front wheel in and make that catch up. And so... It's just a little bit quicker and requires you to be a little bit more precise in your timing about how those things all come together in some ways. And so depending on whether your tendency is towards feeling like the bike is harder to muscle around and you want something that's quicker and sharper feeling, then I think the mullet setups can work really well if you're more in my camp of not minding so much having to put a lot of effort into like muscling a bigger, longer, slower bike around and valuing just super consistent and predictable and kind of calm cornering behavior more, the mixed wheel sizes tend to work a little bit less well. And so uh, I think that's kind of where I've come down on it as sort of how I think about that trade-off in general. And yeah, personally, the mixed wheel size thing has tended to work a little bit less well for me personally, but I a hundred percent get why other people with different preferences are more into it. Gotcha. Yeah. That, that sounds like a very, uh, a much more intelligent way of formulating kind of what I'm trying to get at. Like, I don't, I don't think we're disagreeing at all. I just think that you have figured this out more than I have. And hearing you explain this, it, it does make a lot of sense to me because I, I believe that I'm most struggling with full 29ers specifically in those really quick corners where you do need to, you know, dip the back end around and sort of initiate and exit a corner in a, in, you know, very, very quick process, right? Like you're in and you're out kind of situations. I feel like I, I tend to run those long with a 29er and, and end up kind of going off the outside of the corner in a lot of instances. So that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, looking back and on my experiences with mullets, I think that is why I find them better in corners. Um, so thank God for David Golay and his big brain, ladies and gentlemen. Um, <laughs> yeah. Back to the tracer. I, I really like the suspension of the tracer um, it feels like it is designed to work with a coil. Um, and sort of what I mean by that is we sort of touched this on a, touched on this on a different episode, but I put a coil on the Santa Cruz mega tower, which originally had an air on it. And that sort of made it feel stiffer overall, gave it a lot of mid stroke support going from that to the tracer doesn't feel like apples to apples right the tracer feels 
a little bit more supple off the top versus a bike that isn't particularly designed to work only with a coil and has it still has good mid-stroke support and good bottom out resistance for a coil uh, it feels like the suspension has a good bit of progression to it that makes it work really well with the coil and it has really excellent traction is what i is what i most notice a really calm feeling on chattery sections of trail you know off camber off camber roots rocks it feels like that rear wheel is just tracking really well and providing really good control uh, which i really appreciate um, and i tried it both with a 450 pound coil as well as a 500 pound coil and that's on a fox dhx2 with 65 mil stroke and i enjoyed both um i feel like if this were more of a you know aggressive trail bike that i was doing a lot of you know uphill and downhill bigger days i think i would want the 450 as it provides yeah a little bit more traction off the top a little bit less um support later in the in the travel as well as just a little bit softer overall obviously and i think that would be great for just all around trail riding um but the more i took the tracer to the bike park i was riding you know basically as hard as i could on it that's where i really enjoyed the 500 pound coil and personally if i'm owning an enduro bike i'm going to be doing a lot of hard riding on it taking it to the bike park a lot just because we happen to have one 45 minutes away so i think i'd opt for the 500 pound coil in this situation but who knows maybe 475 would be a, a really nice middle ground and thankfully fox makes that so and yeah, so while I love the rear suspension on this bike, the fork I had a little bit less love for. Um, and this isn't a huge surprise given that it came with that grip damper on the Performance 38 Fox fork, which, yeah, in the past I've loved less than the Grip 2 just because, you know, there's a lot less adjustability there. And I find myself wanting more compression in a lot of different instances and the ability to you know, differentiate between low speed, high speed compression in that fork. And the recommended settings for that fork was like 92 PSI, which I don't think I've ever ran in a fork before. Personally, I'm usually around 70 to 80, depending on the bike and a big 38 mil stanchion fork on an enduro bike. So I ended up reducing that to about 80 PSI at 90. It just felt like I was in the back two thirds of the bike the whole time. So reducing that a little bit helped me get a little bit more forward, a little bit more front end traction without, I don't think I bottomed it out more than once or twice, which I really appreciate. Um, so fork took a little bit more time to figure out definitely running lower settings than intense recommended. And I would imagine a lot of people will be doing the same thing, but again, all personal preference here. Um, as far as climbing goes, not a stellar climber. Um, it's definitely more efficient than a super dedicated enduro sled like the Norco Range, but not as good as Santa Cruz Mega Tower or Rebel Rail 29 in terms of efficiency. Um, definitely a bike that feels like kind of just wants you to sit down, flip that climb switch whenever you can, and just kind of you know spin out climbs. Um, positive is it has really good traction on uh, technical climbs, which I really appreciate. A lot of lots of smooth um, support on the way up, good traction, never really spun out, and really good technical climber. Uh, appreciate that. But yeah, like I said, definitely taking advantage of the climb switch on that bike. And I feel like we talk about the Norco range a lot in terms of it like not being efficient i just want to be clear the norco range is a really good bike it's just not a very versatile one i feel like we we give the range maybe a bad rap and i hope people aren't hearing that but yeah norco makes a good bike in their range it's just a really dedicated enduro bike that wants to go fast downhill just to be clear i feel like i should put that out there i mean the way i've summarized it before is to describe the range as the closest thing to an actual downhill bike that you can still more or less pedal uphill that I've been on. And if you look at it through that framing, it's excellent. It's just more downhill oriented and less efficient and doesn't pedal as well 
than even most other 170 travel enduro bikes. But it is something pretty unique and pretty special. And uh, for the right people and the right use cases, it is excellent. For sure. But yeah, that's the Intense Tracer 279. We should have a full review up on the site of that in the next couple weeks or so. Um, So yeah, keep an eye out for that. And let me know if you have any questions of that in the review, and we'd be happy to get back to you. Right on. Good summary there. What's up next? Yeah, so more recently, I've been spending time on the Rebel Rail 29er. And if the Tracer is a little bit more on the more downhill-oriented side of enduro bikes slash long-travel 29ers, I would put the Rebel Rail on the opposite end of that spectrum where it feels more versatile it can get away with being people's more dedicated do everything trail bike and it feels more efficient better climber less in t- less inclined to touch that climb lockout switch etc it is a super intuitive bike that's one of the first things i noticed usually it takes me several laps at a bike park to get used to a bike or a couple trail rides but the rail is a bike that I hopped on and just felt really comfortable on right away. It's like I said, really good all rounder bike. This is something I've been taking on a variety of trail rides and as well as in the bike park. And it's been really hard to make it feel out of place. It's slightly less capable than something like a intense tracer or a Santa Cruz mega tower. And that manifests itself in feeling a little bit less composed, controlled, and traction-rich in super rough sections of trail. But it also feels like a bike that rewards you with more speed the more that you're pumping into corners, over rollers, etc. than those longer travel bikes that can feel a little bit more sluggish. Um, Yeah, I don't want to say too much on this bike since I haven't had that many rides on it. But so far, this feels like a really intuitive, well-rounded, long-travel trail slash enduro bike that I think a lot of riders could get along with pretty well. Um, Eric has spent a good, a lot more time on it um, before he sent it to me. And he said he had a little bit more trouble with the initial setup in terms of Uh, mostly the suspension and it took him a little bit while to tweak that. I just think the last person who rode that bike had sort of unique preferences. Um, It was kind of funny because I mentioned how intuitive the bike was to Eric and he was like, Oh, that's super good. Cause I like spent a lot of time um, like tweaking with the rear shock and whatnot. So thank you, Eric Friesen for, for setting this up for me. Um, But yeah, well, we got a flash review of that up on the site with both both Eric and Mai's take on it that you can read if you want a little bit more on that bike, but we'll also be getting a full review of that bike out this fall. Right. Yeah. Looking forward to reading that one. And sounds like it's kind of an interesting middle ground between sort of longer travel trail bikes and really more full on enduro ones kind of blurring the line there a little bit. For sure. Yeah. So to kind of move over to some of the stuff I've been on recently, we just ran full review of the Cavins VHP 16. So you can check that out on the site. It's up now. But just to touch on that quickly before we move on, and you can go read the review if you want the more in-depth version. Pretty interesting bike. Also have talked with their founder and designer, Giacomo, on an earlier episode of Bikes and Big Ideals. We'll link to that too. Uh, but it's basically a 160 travel high pivot enduro bike that despite all of that is surprisingly versatile pedals pretty well and is on the slightly quicker handling a little bit more nimble not quite as outright stable as a lot of similarly long travel enduro bikes often are and so it's sort of a unusual combination of traits but one that i think actually works together really nicely the suspension is outstanding it does a very good job of simultaneously having pretty good small bump sensitivity really good traction 
both under power and just as you're riding it downhill too. like it, the rear wheel tracks super well, but it's not an ultra long, super stable bike that has to be going a thousand miles an hour to feel like it handles cleanly and comes alive. And so especially for people who are riding a lot of more rough, technical, raw, natural trails, but ones that aren't necessarily so wide open as to be really kind of qualifying as full outright flat out fast necessarily it's a really good option because it's like i said the suspension's amazing but it's not a super cumbersome awkward thing when you're not going really fast and in tighter spots and it's a unique combo but a good one and really got along with it quite well so um probably leave it there again full reviews up so you can go read that now but to move it into something quite a bit shorter travel than what we've been talking about so far, I've also been spending time on the new Santa Cruz Tallboy. And uh, so that's their 120 rear travel, 130 forked short travel trail bike that Santa Cruz in their marketing materials for it calls it, quote, the Downhillers XC bike, which I think is pretty apt. So by the standards of 120 travel, trail bikes it is it pedals reasonably well but only kind of like fine for that class of bike which of course are generally speaking pretty efficient short travel snappy sorts of bikes so it's you know if you're looking at the whole mountain bike market as a whole comparing it to longer travel stuff it's still pretty quick and efficient for what it is as a 120 travel bike it's totally kind of within the realm of normal but no kind of standout on that front what it does do notably well is that it is one of the more kind of basically the best way i can put it is that it's a for what it is as a short snappy 120 travel bike it is quite forgiving when you're pushing it pretty hard downhill and so particularly if you're trying to go hard on this little short travel not super stable bike with not a lot of suspension you're at least if you're me probably going to start making some mistakes and it's a bike that just feels composed and forgiving when you're going pretty hard it's not the most plush and cushy thing that feels really mellow and easy going necessarily it's a bike that you kind of need to start to push a little bit for it to come into its element and feel like it's really working like the small bump sensitivity is not all that great and you're it's not going to feel super mellow and forgiving if you aren't getting after it a little bit um but it's kind of an interesting combination there and so and one of the things that i think is helping it a whole lot is the new rock shocks pike that's up front so it's my first time on the new pike reviewed the new zeb earlier this year and came away a very very big fan of that fork and did so having had some i guess didn't necessarily love the first generation zeb entirely uh, and in particular i found the mid-stroke support on the original zeb to be pretty lacking and so for a long travel enduro fork that's getting ridden on a lot of steep trails i just had a very hard time finding a balance where i could keep the fork up in its travel without it being super stiff and feeling harsh and chattery and i i struggled with that anyway new zeb huge improvement go read the full review that we have up on the site that's been up for a bit but anyway to get to the pike that's on the tall boy got a little bit of a tangent there the new pike feels really quite a bit like a mini version of the zeb now it's got 40 millimeters less travel it's smaller stanchions it's definitely not as stiff and precise all the things that you would expect from the smaller shorter travel version of the fork but it's got the same damper design spring design is largely the same it's got all the fun new features like the buttercups that are their little vibration damping inserts in the connections between the spring and damper shafts to the lower legs and the pressure relief buttons on the backside of the lowers and all that kind of stuff and so anyway for this class of like 130 travel forks comparing it to stuff like the fox 34 and the owens rxf 34 
the pike is 150 or 200 grams heavier than either of those two. So there is a bit of a weight penalty for it, but it also feels like much more of a high performance descending oriented, more capable fork. The chassis stiffer and more precise. The damper feels quite a bit more consistent and supportive and composed than really either the Fox dampers, both the fit four or the, even the grip two in the little mini 34 guys just isn't really quite as capable of running firmer damping and really feeling super supportive as the charger three in the pike is. And so I'm very impressed with that fork and think that it's kind of a good case in point of just the trade-offs that exist, particularly in that kind of class where your weight is still a major point of emphasis, but adding that extra couple hundred grams over the 34, the RXF 34 has let Rock Shocks really bake in both the stiffer chassis and a higher performing damper. And so, you know, if you're shopping for something in that class, it's kind of worth considering. Do How much do you care about that 200 grams? Do you really want stuff like a climb mode that the RXF 34 or the Fit 4 34 have because the Pike doesn't? But it's a better fork on the way back down. And so um, that's doing the tall boys some real favors. Anyway, that tangent aside. But the rest of the bike is really pretty well done, too. Um, the suspension feels especially supportive for a 120 travel bike, something that I have found on a number of shorter travel trail bikes I've been on recently. The Rocky Mountain element maybe being one of the better examples of this is that with so little travel available, it's often pretty easy to wind up with setups that feel like the rear suspension's quite progressive to the point where you don't have the best mid-stroke support in your... And I think a lot of this is also the source of straight-body, small-volume air shocks that come on those bikes for largely weight-saving reasons. Just often, those shocks themselves tend to be pretty progressive. And so you end up with not the best mid-stroke support and relying a lot on the air spring's big ramp-up at the end to stop the shock from bottoming out pretty harshly all the time. But then that ends up leading to the bike settling pretty deep into its travel on a lot of smaller bumps. And then you're kind of running into that progression wall. Anyway, the tall boy still has a Fox DPS on it. It's not like they've specced a big burly shock on it, but they've made the rear suspension significantly less progressive than the old one and less progressive than a lot of the stuff you might shop against it. And so what I think that's done is that it's, fed pretty well into the character of the bike that I've been describing thus far because you end up running the shock pretty stiff because there's not a huge amount of progression to deal with bottom out events. And so it's a little firmer off the top. The small bump sensitivity is not anything to write home about, but it's a 120 travel bike. You know, I think that's a fair trade off. And what you get in trade is that there's notably good mid stroke support and it rides a little bit higher in its travel through a lot of smaller chattery stuff, meaning that there's just more suspension left over out of the fairly limited total amount available to deal with those bumps. And it does feel more composed when you're pushing it hard as a result at the expense of some small bump sensitivity and forgiveness if you're going pretty slow and not smashing stuff harder. So for what they've done in making it a more aggressive, more kind of downhillers XC bike, as they put it, to use that catchphrase again. I think it's it makes a bunch of sense, and the whole package comes together pretty nicely. So I'm pretty stoked on that one. Um, we have a flash review up that folks can check out and uh, have our normal full review up in a bit once we spend some more time on it. That one just came out a f- few weeks ago, so full review's a little ways out. I need a lot more time on it, but early impressions are quite good so far. Cool. Yeah. It's good to hear that. It seems like sometimes when you try to, you know, be two things at once with a bike, sometimes you can end up doing both poorly. 
both with the cabins and the tall boy, it seems like both of these companies have done a good job of balancing, you know, two different sort of performance characteristics in a good way rather than doing nothing well. Um, so that that's good to hear. And yeah, about that shock, curious if um, if you think something like a, a slightly bigger shock, like a Float X or maybe even a Super Deluxe on that tall boy um, could make it feel a little, a little bit different. Um, I know that on the Pivot Trail 429, as well as the Niner Jet 9 that I reviewed, but both of those came with the Fox DPX2, which is no longer around, but I was actually really impressed with the rear shock performance of both of those bikes and didn't exactly feel those issues that you were describing with riding a little bit too deep in the travel, given how tiny the air shock is and dealing with, you know, having to balance that small bump compliance mixed with uh, lack of progression and whatnot. So curious what your thoughts are there. I actually kind of think that DPS spec makes sense on this bike. My my thinking on that is pretty much that I've found the little straight body shocks to feel limiting on bikes where the suspension, uh, like the rear suspension linkage, that is, the kinematics of the bike itself, not mm-hmm. taking the shock into account, are a little bit too progressive for those sorts of smaller volume air shocks that are themselves more progressive. And so... I think that you get a certainly with going to say a float X, you get a damper that is more consistent at, over longer runs as you get it hotter and stuff. It's better able to dissipate heat and that kind of stuff. But I think that you would end up running a significant amount of volume spacers in that float X and end up with spring performance that feels not wildly dissimilar to what the dps does on its own anyway and so i kind of feel like it is more of a case of santa cruz has done a good job of designing the frame around the sorts of shocks that they're going to use on it and all of their builds come with a dps so it's sort of like they've got that pairing worked out pretty well and um i i think it's kind of a solid one and i don't think that this is a bike that is really necessarily calling for a bigger shock in short gotcha yeah that's a good summary explains explains it a lot and um yeah moving on yeah so i've also been spending a bunch of time on continental's new gravity tire lineup um we've touched on them very briefly on the site so far in our recent best worst names article because the product line names on that are a bit hard to keep track of. They're essentially all, I guess, just made up names that sound sort of similar, and it's a little bit confusing to keep track of them. But Yeah, real quick, I want to hear you pronounce each of these names. Yeah, here we go. Okay, <laughs> so uh, to summarize, there is the kind of main all-rounder tires in the lineup are the Cryptotal, which they have a front and rear version of different tread patterns. Then their slightly faster rolling, more dry conditioned rear tire oriented model is the Xenotal. Then there is a spikier kind of mixed slash soft condition tire that is the Argatol. And finally, their full-on DH mud spike is the Hydratol. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know if there's a list. Those are my best guesses. I might have butchered all of those. I'm really not sure. (laughs) Yeah, maybe there's a linguist out there that knows what's going on here. Maybe there's some sort of some language that I'm that I don't know of. Um, But yeah, those that sounds like an entirely new language on its own to me. Yeah, and maybe these make more sense to a German speaker. So if anyone out here listening speaks German and can translate for us, please drop a line in the comments. Please. Anyway, 
Uh, the good news is that their rubber compound and casing options are a whole lot more straightforward because the rubber options are simply endurance, soft, and super soft, and the casings are trail, enduro, downhill, which has to be the most straightforward tire casing and rubber compound system in the industry, which is hilarious given their names. Right. Yeah, it, it's a real exercise in contrasts there. <laughs> Anyway, so thus far, I have mostly been spending time on the Cryptotal front and rear combination uh, and have been trying those in both the enduro and downhill casings in a mix of soft and super soft rubber compounds. Uh, you can only get the super soft rubber in the downhill casings, so you have to step up to those for that. But... What I would say is that the downhill casings are actually pretty comparable to similar tires in Maxxis's double down casing. And the Continental Enduro casing is definitely a lighter, lighter duty casing than double down or Schwab Super Gravity, which are sort of those respective companies, quote unquote, Enduro options. And so... For folks listening who are used to running one of those options and are thinking about putting these on a big enduro bike where they want a little bit beefier casing, I would be quite quick to encourage you to just step up to the downhill casing and go for it. They're not they're on the lighter side for a quote unquote downhill casing tire. And I've been running them on some enduro bikes pretty happily. Um anyway, to get to the tires themselves, the Cryptotal rear tire is quite reminiscent of a Maxxis DHR2 in its tread pattern, but with a little bit taller knobs. And so what has actually been very interesting about that, though, is that it is it rolls surprisingly well. I mean, it's obviously still a pretty big, aggressive tire. It is not a super fast tire in the grand scheme of things, but I think it does roll a little bit faster than a DHR2 comparing kind of comparable rubber compounds. And braking performance is pretty good in drier conditions. I have not yet really had an opportunity to test these in anything wet because it hasn't rained here in months. So uh, everything thus far has been bone dry and a combination of pretty hard pack to some pretty loose and dusty stuff. And so if you think of the Cryptotal rear as being a slightly faster rolling, slightly lower braking performance, but like in the same kind of ballpark as a DHR2, you've you're on the right track with kind of where those slide in at the, this point for me. The front is interesting. It looks I've heard it described a bunch as sort of looking a little bit like a Max's Asagai, which I kind of would quibble with a little bit it actually to me is a little bit closer to a more aggressive bigger knobbed version of the maxis dissector because the the point of differentiation i want to make there is that so like both the dissector and the assegai it's got some transition knobs so sort of in contrast to things like the minion dhf or dhr2 that have a super big wide open channel between the center knobs and the side knobs and there's a real delineation between the two the cryptotal front does have something kind of approximating transition knobs but they are both a lot bigger and blockier and less flexible than those on the assegai and there is still a more pronounced channel between them and the side knobs than the assegai both of which make them a little bit closer to the dissector in terms of design but and this is key those the knobs are also way taller way blockier and it's a much more aggressive tire than the dissector is so kind of an interesting middle ground there in some ways um and i'm mostly getting along with it pretty well braking performance is exceptional it's really one of the better braking tires i've been on recently especially on harder packed stuff or kind of loose over hard sort of conditions which is what i've pretty much just been riding it in um and it corners well it's 
predictable. Corner grip is pretty good. The thing that I think maybe has a little bit of room for improvement is that on the 30 millimeter internal width rims that I've been running it on so far, the profile is a little bit more squared off than I might like out of a front tire. And so it does feel like at really high lean angles, the grip starts to fall off a little bit and it gets a little driftier in it. I think you can just lean past the side knobs a little bit more readily because of that sort of square profile. So once it starts to push a little bit, it does drift pretty predictably and it's not like it cuts loose super abruptly and just gives up on you. But the grip does start to fall off a little bit as you really lean it over super far, which I wouldn't mind it being just a touch more round, but because it's still pretty predictable and consistent when you do that, it's working fairly well overall. As far as the rubber compounds go, based on just kind of feel, my take thus far is that the they're sort of like half a step firmer than Maxxis's offerings, which is to say that they're the Continental Soft Rubber feels slightly firmer than Maxxis's Max Terra, and the Super Soft feels slightly firmer than Maxxis's Max Grip. So I am curious to see how they fare once things start getting wetter and things like wet roots come into play, which is where really sticky rubber tends to be of the biggest advantage. And unfortunately, just cannot speak to that yet because it hasn't rained again. So uh, uh, the full review of these is going to be a ways off because I need to just get some more testing in more kinds of conditions once the weather gods decide that we should get some sort of conditions other than dry and dusty. Uh, and then I've also got a couple of the uh, Argitals, the spikier, more mixed condition tire to try out once those become an appropriate option. But uh, we'll just have to see when that comes about and get into those more when the time comes. Yeah. Well, we've got plenty of rain here in Gunny and CB. So if you want to come over and test those here, then you should that might be worth considering we will <laughs> we'll talk well to keep it moving here uh, dylan i'm curious how much you have experimented with crank length on mountain bikes yourself because hope has just launched a new 155 millimeter version of their evo mountain bike crank and they are touting the short arms as being beneficial in a bunch of different ways. And this is a speculative one for me at this point, because I have not yet tried the Hope 155 cranks, though, literally, as we speak here, I just watched the UPS guy deliver them. So I've got a <laughs> set sitting on my porch right now. I'll start testing those probably tomorrow. But I am curious if you have done much crank length experimentation yourself. I might be in the minority here, but I honestly do not think about crank length very much. I don't really ever change or I don't ever change the crank length on bikes that we test. Um, usually on something between 165 and 175, 170 seems to be the most common on the bikes that I get on. And I don't think there's ever been an instance where I've felt the need to change the crank length, nor do I think I would be able to tell a huge difference between, you know, in that sort of common realm of, you know, a, a centimeter of difference in crank length. But 155 is pretty big difference between what comes on most bikes these days, which I would say is usually around 170 when we're in the realm of, you know, mediums and larges. Um, so yeah, that's, I, I know some people have pretty strong opinions about crank length out there. It seems to be one of the maybe least talked about variables in mountain bike setup. Um, so yeah, super interested what, what, like what your thoughts are preliminary and what you start thinking of these 155 mil cranks. And I'm, I am curious of the claims that they're making about them and what they're supposed to do better at. Yeah, so I guess for where I'm at at this point is that 
the vast majority of bikes that come through to test for at least for stuff that you're pedaling, taking downhill bikes out of the equation for a second, tend to have 170s on them, occasionally 175s. And my personal trail enduro bikes all have 170s on them. I have a slight preference for 170s over 175s, having tried both, basically pretty much entirely down to the slightly smaller pedal circle, just feeling a little bit more natural to me. And the Longer cranks requiring you to use a bigger range of motion in your knees as you're pedaling, just coming over the top. Um, I'm six feet tall. I've got kind of normal length legs for my height, and I can certainly pedal 175s happily enough, but the slightly smaller pedal circle of 170s does feel more natural to me. But I haven't really tried shorter than that on more pedal-oriented bikes much at all, and so I'm pretty curious to see what these feel like as far as hopes claims there are a couple things that they tout one is that they say that the shorter cranks actually make your stance more stable when your cranks flat coasting downhill because you aren't having to sort of pivot your hips as much to line your legs up when your feet are closer together which I can maybe see, I think the counter argument in my head right now is that your feet are then closer together. And so you've got a smaller platform to work with there. And I can see that going both ways. I'm curious to see what it feels like. I don't have clear answers there. The other stuff they talk about is, of course, just more pedal clearance because the cranks are shorter. Checks out. Uh, and they also say that the shorter cranks are easier to spin up like when you're, say, sprinting out of a corner or something because you aren't turning over this big circle and it's just faster to go from coasting into pedaling quickly, which, again, makes a certain amount of sense in my head, but we will just have to see how it all goes. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of from like a physical standpoint, I know that in the fall, I usually have to do a good bit of stretching to compensate for the wide stance that a, that mountain biking gives you and sort of the imbalance. Usually one of my legs, uh, specifically hamstrings, is a lot tighter than the other, and I have to kind of work that out before um, ski season. I feel like this is maybe one of the least significant considerations out there, but maybe if um, you know someone's a, a PT or something out there, um, or a trainer or something. And they're looking at these short cranks thinking that these will be good for people who, who balance between mountain biking and skiing. I don't know, but that was just something that popped into my head as you were talking about it. Yeah. Uh, all interesting questions, which we will be answering here soon. Once I start spending some time on these things. So, um, curious about this one. If you are a short crank acolyte and have thoughts, drop them in the comments. Curious to hear from you. So one last thing to wrap on here, I guess, is just wanted to touch a little bit on our upcoming break shootout that we've been working on. Uh, we've teased it a little bit in a few places, but haven't gone into too much detail about what that's going to entail. And so just wanted to share a little bit more on that front. And basically, uh, if you've seen our big trail enduro fork roundup, we are doing kind of the same thing for breaks. And so this is going to be focusing on the sorts of breaks that people are using on sort of mid to longer travel trail bikes and up. So the bigger, more powerful four pistons in most of the company's lines. And as I've been going through the testing on this, one of the things that is really standing out to me is that there are certainly some differences in the amount of outright power and how different brakes deal with heat and some things like that. But I think that in a lot of ways, the more significant differences are in terms of the lever feel and the power delivery, because there's a huge range of brakes that kind of run the gamut from stuff that has a very immediate sharp bite the instant that the pads engage Shimano's four piston stuff being kind of the front runners on that particular front. And then 
at the opposite end of the spectrum, you've got some things, uh, SRAM codes and TRP DHR EVOs kind of being the standard bearers that have much, much more linear power delivery and have a good bit of outright power, but it builds more gradually as the brake engages and you have a pretty substantial difference in how the brakes feel and how you actually use them as a result. And so kind of one of the big points of this is going to be to tease those differences out and talk about how they feel different, who they're going to work for. And we're doing quite a bit to both test brakes with their stock pad compounds and the other pad compounds that the manufacturer might offer, but then have also got a huge mountain of my current personal favorite Galfer Green Pro pads that I'm going to be testing all of the brakes with as well to have those as sort of a control group and have a version of the test that's using the same rotors, same brake pads on everything and just testing the brakes themselves with those particular variables taken out of it. And so it's going to be a pretty big document it's going to be a long one and it has been a lot of work to put it together but it's coming together here and i think it's going to be pretty cool because it's just a lot of detail and breaks obviously matter a whole lot and it's something that i think a lot of people have not necessarily experimented with as much as they perhaps could have and um in along that, I'm going to talk a bit about rotor sizing and how to deal with all that kind of stuff and um, just all the different variables that go into picking a pair of brakes because they're expensive, they are important, and I think a lot of folks haven't necessarily tried as many different options and just have the same perspective on what the whole market looks like and what their options are. And so trying to help change that. Awesome. Yeah, this seems like something that that's going to be super important. And it feels like today more than ever, there are tons of good brake options out there. It seems like every time I get out on the trails, I'm seeing a wider variety of brakes on people's bikes than ever before. And as someone who rides a different, a bunch of different review bikes with different models of brakes on it, it's pretty stark how a different brake feel can really translate to a different experience on the bike. Um, yeah, brakes are super important. I would put them at the top or near the top of components that have a substantial effect on your biking experience, probably after wheels and suspension, but yeah. Yeah, they're up there. Yeah. And one thing that I've been kind of getting my head around with all this too is that the models of brakes that we're testing here are kind of the bigger more powerful ones in all of the given companies lineups generally speaking and i'm really becoming pretty convinced that for a lot of people going sort of quote unquote overkill on brakes is probably a good thing in that and um for one thing if you've got a more powerful brake it can do less braking right you just don't have to squeeze it as hard and so uh i'm really finding for myself that having more outright power than i absolutely strictly need is within reason you know you can go overkill and make it things hard to control if you really really overshoot by a lot but having a brake that is leaves a bit of margin and you just don't have to squeeze as hard to get whatever amount of power you actually want out of them really does pay some benefits when it comes to hand and wrist fatigue because you're just not squeezing as hard and maybe even more importantly i'm actually finding it to be the case that Again, within reason, if you don't go wildly, wildly overkill, having a brake setup where you don't have to squeeze as hard to get the amount of power that you're looking for out of them can actually make them easier to control because you've got better motor control in your fingers when you are not at max effort on how hard you're pulling on the brakes. And so 
being able to feather them more gently and get that power out of them with a more moderate effort actually can make a more powerful break easier to control than a less powerful one. And so, and especially as 29ers have become the norm, I think breaks have been a little bit slow to catch up to that because everyone's pretty familiar with the idea that going to larger rotors makes your brakes more powerful, but going to larger wheels has the exact opposite impact. It's sort of taking away leverage from the brakes in exactly the same way that going to a bigger rotor adds leverage. It's, it's really kind of the ratio of wheel size to rotor size that is the more applicable thing there than strictly just rotor size on its own. And so I kind of feel like as 29ers have become the norm, especially on bigger enduro and downhill bikes, the industry has been a little bit slow to catch up to that on the brake front. And we are seeing 220 or 223 millimeter rotors become more common, which is, I think, a response to that. But a lot of the brakes that are being used on those bikes are models that have been around or haven't been changed too significantly since before 29ers were the standard for those sorts of bikes. And I think there's room to bump power up and go bigger in a lot of cases. And there are some photos of what certainly look to be a new version of the SRAM code in the works floating around on the internet. Uh, so seems like SRAM is perhaps doing something there. We know no, nothing more than what the rest of you listening do at this point, but I think those are happening and it'll be interesting to see where the market goes from here. But those are my high level thoughts on brake power and just kind of coming around to the notion that more maybe kind of is more here yeah yeah all good thoughts and i wanted to to echo what you were saying about people on you know shorter travel bikes than what usually comes stock with these more powerful brakes you're talking about benefiting from more brake power in their bikes um i have only been mountain biking in the world of you know powerful hydraulic disc brakes which i'm very thankful for but I've also spent a lot of time on XC bikes, budget-oriented XC bikes with pretty terrifying brakes on them. And yeah, I can think back to many races where you're, you know, 20 plus miles in and just hating your brakes and just completely out of control because you can't slow down fast enough and you're not, you know, just blowing up in corners and pedaling out of them and stuff. And yeah, I if I could go back in time i would definitely up my braking power on all of the xc bikes i've ever raced on and would probably thank myself for it so yeah along those lines too the weight difference between say a sram g2 and a sram code is not very much i mean we're talking i think it's about 30 grams per wheel and especially if going to the bigger code lets you run a smaller rotor size then you've completely canceled that way difference out and good point probably still have a more powerful brake for it so yeah just i think a lot of people default to the, a smaller lighter brake because it's sort of the option that sounds like the right thing in a given brake manufacturer's line but the trade-off for going bigger is not actually very much weight in most cases and just food for thought. So stay tuned for a whole lot more on breaks coming in that break shootout soon. And we'll have a couple of more individual reviews of the breaks in the roundup that we have not yet put out full reviews of coming pretty soon, including the Magura MT7 and the TRP DHR Evo as we work our way up to getting the full roundup out. So stay tuned for all of that soon. And with that, Dylan, thanks for chatting been great as always and i'll let you get back to it now yeah thanks for your time david good chat hopefully rain clears out a little bit here and can get out on the bike and i'll figure out how i can send some rain your way that would be much appreciated so yeah if we can even those out a little bit that'd be great we'll work on our blister weather control system next i guess get the labs folks on that one or something yeah you thought blister labs was impressive just wait (laughs) 
perfect. Well, yeah, we'll see if we can make that happen. Um, well, we'll do our best. So good talking. <laughs> awesome. Catch you soon. Yeah, good chat. See you later. All right, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, we'd appreciate you leaving us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. Getting that info out there really helps keep the show growing and going and get the word out. So please help spread it. I also want to say thanks to Dylan for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we'll talk to you again next week. Bye, everybody.